Well, you say that life is driven by the chance. You could have been an astronaut given the right circumstance. Hello, I'm Lawrence Jones, and this is my podcast. Today, I've got Chris Smith with me in the studio. Chris, I've known him for oh, a long time, actually, since the really early years of UK Fast. He's an incredible character. He's brought podcasts to life, probably before anybody else was doing them. And he's also somebody who's making science fun and engaging. He's got millions of followers and hundreds of millions of downloads. He's the man behind the naked scientist. Luckily, he's wearing his clothes today. Chris, tell me all about it. Well, thank you for having me, Lawrence. Uh, what I do is uh, I'm a medical doctor. I'm a consultant at Adam Brooks Hospital, which is Cambridge University's teaching hospital. And I do that for half the week. The other half of the week, I take my clothes off and I become the naked scientist. And this is actually something I started when I was a medical student, a PhD student at Cambridge. Because in the middle of that PhD, I found myself with a little bit of free time on my hands and I started a radio show all about science because I didn't think there was enough science in the media at the time to really inspire the next generation of people to go to university and study science. And in the course of, of developing that radio show, which was on a small-scale commercial radio station, um, initially I, I, I got the show airborne by buying airtime off the management. I persuaded them to sell me a year's airtime because I thought there would be scope for doing this. And I went around and raised all the money and I bought the airtime off of them. And, and we started this show. But the thing that struck me was it was a small-scale commercial station. It probably had five or 6,000 listeners that we were getting to on a Sunday evening when we were doing our programme. But it was an enormous amount of work across a week to make a programme that then actually, if you lived outside the broadcast area or if you didn't have the time to listen at the time it was on, then you missed out and there was no prospect of ever recapturing that learning. And uh, the internet was beginning to become sufficiently robust by, this is the year 2000, that you could download about more than a nanobit in a decade. Yeah. So we thought, why don't we try and explore, uh, explore the use of this amazing resource, which is up and coming, and start to put these programs as a digital impression on there and let people just take the audio away and use it at their convenience. And, and it didn't take many more tweaks to then have a system where actually people could sign up to an RSS feed and push the stuff to them as a subscription every week. And so this is like 2001. And, uh, you know, does this sound familiar? Because a few years later along comes this, this concept that got dubbed podcasting. And uh, the rest is really history. It is amazing when you consider that it was so early on. And my first recollection of meeting you, you were in a bit of trouble, really, weren't you? you <laughs> you'd created this thing that grown so large. It sounds crazy when you look at it now. But back then, hosting providers didn't have enough capacity to really deal with something as large as your podcast. Well, that's absolutely true. And you and I first met just over 12 years ago. And what had happened is that, yes, we'd got this podcast off the ground. And at that time, people had been selling, ISPs had been selling web packages to people where they were offering people unlimited bandwidth, unlimited downloads. Because to be fair, the only thing you could really download at that time was the odd web page yeah. and a few pictures. Yeah. YouTube really hadn't taken off at that time. There wasn't mass media. There wasn't huge bandwidth consumption type scope. So along comes something like The Naked Scientist, where we've got several hundred hours of studio quality programs and people are going on iTunes and clicking get all. And I mean, that's, that's, that's a few hundred gigabytes yeah. when you think about it. And, um, 
of course, the servers that we were trying to run this on, both at Cambridge University and I used a range of other web hosts in the country, um, just weren't up to the job. And I was being thrown off by a different web host on roughly a week, weekly basis. And, uh, and I realised that actually we were about to become a massive victim of our own success because we had this website where we transcribed all the programmes, which was key as well, because we, we knew that people were using our programme to learn English because there's lots of language teaching modules on the internet. You can learn English on there, but there's not many that teach you anything other than what time does the supermarket open and is this water drinkable? You know, there's nothing that teaches you science speak type English. Yeah. Uh, we, were, we were therefore, by providing the transcript, we were providing that service. And, uh, and so we, we had this very busy site and a big uh, download train coming off every week. And, um, and so I thought, I'm in big trouble. So I made a list of all of the hosting companies I could find in the UK and just started going through alphabetically. And, and the conversation would go something like, hello, who are you? And I'd say, well, I do this. And, um, and they and they say, well, what do you want? And you say, well, I'm looking for some web hosting. And they'd say, oh, really, how, how many hits? And you'd say, oh, a few million. And they'd say, what, a year? And you'd say, no, a week. And they'd say, well, how much data transfer is this? And you'd, I don't know, 20 terabytes a month or so, not much. And, and they would, and the phone would go dead. Um, and I got down to the use and I got through to UK fast. And this person, unlike most of the previous phone calls, this person said, uh, I'll ring you back. And, and I thought that was the end of the conversation, to be quite frank, Lawrence. But then Jonathan Bowers rang me back. And, um, and he said, well, I've spoken to Lawrence about this. And uh, will you come and meet us? We're at the trade fair in London. And so that, that was, I think, about May 2006. And, and we met for the first time. And, um, and I remember you were extremely sympathetic to my predicament and offered to help. And also, back then, you probably were our largest consumer of, of, of <laughs> you were and the fact that we were giving it for free as well was probably not my best commercial decision you could argue in some ways but I also knew how important what you were doing was and, and I could see the passion in your eyes and I just wanted to support you and now looking back on reflection it's probably one of the best commercial things we've ever done because it's a brilliant symbiotic relationship helping you flourish and i see the good that you do right across well the world the globe now i think it's also helped by the fact that uk fast has had about 100 million brand impressions <laughs> thanks to the naked scientist so well definitely i, I think definitely. that's probably a reasonable commercially yeah definitely and uh, but also i think what you do as well you make science quite fun as well don't you it's not just straightforward very plain and boring come and tell me some of the things that you might do on on there well, this has taken me around the world. Um, I mean, when I first got it started, I realised I needed to learn more about how you make science programmes, not just how you, how you just talk about science, because that's quite different. If you stand up and do what you do in a lecture theatre for medical students and you do that on the radio, it doesn't have the same pizzazz. So I actually went to Australia for a while and uh, I lived in Sydney and I joined the ABC and I learned how to make really cracking radio programmes. Got on it, actually, funnily enough, paradoxically from Australia, ended up on Five Live... Uh, came back over here and then started this relationship with Five Live. And because that was much bigger scale, we then got better known. And I started making uh, science stage shows to accompany the podcast. And, uh, and we also went to South Africa, as you do, to speak at a conference, ended up in a radio station there. And uh, it turned out to be a very powerful radio station that then said they would love to start working with the Naked Scientists. And we've ended up with one of South Africa's most popular radio shows. And off the back of that, got invited to go down and do the Science Festival in what, what used to be called Grahamstown, at, uh, where Rhodes University is, it just changed its name. But we went and did the Science Festival there. And I did not realise quite how big all this was. I mean, we turned up to do these stage shows. I, I thought, I don't know, 20 kids would turn up and we'd do some experiments and wow them out a bit. 
and uh, we were booked for a week. There were three shows a day, and at every show there was about 1,500 people came to these science shows. Um, and so very quickly I had to learn to get this right and to, to do things that were really great fun. So literally reinvented what we were going to do, and we were just doing basically blowing stuff up for an hour on stage. Um, I, had, I had all this hydrogen, and we, didn't, we couldn't get the methane I wanted, so I said I have to use hydrogen instead, and we tried it outside. And it, it worked really rather well. It was very, very loud bangs that were happening. Um, so anyway, that, that's what we did, and um, it, it's grown ever since. I still go to South Africa and do that sort of thing. I do it in Australia as well now. So this, this has been a wonderful, wonderful thing. And when you try to measure how popular it has been, are there any meaningful milestones where people have said, oh, you've hit your first million or 10 million? Yeah, the one that sticks in my mind is on the 10th of January at, uh, it wasn't quite 10 o'clock, but it was nearly 10 o'clock at night. On, in 2010, we hit the first 10 million Incredible. registered downloads we'd had. Um, but it's only continued to grow, and we're well beyond 100 million downloads of the programs now. And I think, well, that, that's been, it's been very, very humbling, because when I go to other countries, um, people do come up to me, and they, they will say, wow, I listened to that. And, it, and it's really nice, that, because you think, you know, we just give this stuff away for free, because the idea is to try and encourage people to learn more about the world around them and, and have respect for, for the science that, that powers the world around them. Um, but, it, but it is really nice to think that idea was born in my back bedroom, and, you know, I operated the thing as a sort of weekend project for one born out of a back bedroom for a, quite a while. But despite that, you know, in under a decade, we got it onto national radio. And, you know, in under 15 years, we'd surpassed maybe, you know, 50, well, probably 100 million downloads of the podcast. And, it, and it's become an internationally recognised thing. And I think that's, that's you know, I'm, I'm quite proud of that. Oh, you need to be. And going back to that time, and maybe even a little bit before, talk to me about your, your education. So you spent time at Cambridge University. What was that like? Yeah, well, um, I knew I wanted to go to medical school. And I initially applied to Cambridge University and I got rejected, funnily enough. I was in good company because most people are. Yeah. I probably, in retrospect, applied to the wrong college, to be honest with you, because this guy who interviewed me, and this is, I was 17 years old, it was 1992, and there was this old duffer with a pipe and a beard. And he looked down his nose at me and said, mm, what do you think the biggest problem facing medicine in the next 20 years will be? And I looked at him and the 17-year-old Chris Smith said, well, I think antibiotic resistance is going to be a massive problem. And I think we're going to run out of drugs and we'll have infections we can't treat. And this guy laughed at me. Now, I just made a radio program on Five Live last night and I had three of the world's best microbiologists on there and the topic of discussion was what we're going to do now we're running out of antibiotics. So I know who was right. You know, mm. Part of me thinks, well, I hope that guy got MRSA. <laughs> you know, but but um, I, did, I did think, well, I don't really want to come to this college now. So I actually applied to the London Hospital Medical College because I met this woman at an open day and, um, and I knew I wanted to do medicine. And I went to medical school, 1993, and I just remember sitting in this lecture theatre and it was amazing as an experience. There were these gifted teachers, absolutely brilliant teachers. I was at um, the London, which was by then part of Queen Mary University of London, or as it's called now, Queen Mary University of London. And the teaching was phenomenal. And it was like having a brain implant. You know, every day you'd get this amazing sort of knowledge thrust upon you. And I very quickly realised after a couple of years of that, and I did pretty well, I mean, I was top of the class, um, I thought, I don't just want to do only medical things, I want to get into science more. And so I I'd, I'd got really interested in how the brain works. And I went up to the dean and I said, can I do an extra degree in neuroscience because I'm really fascinated about this and your teaching is phenomenal. And she said, well, we don't have a really very good course for that here, but why don't you go and talk to University College London because my husband is the Dean of Life Sciences and they have a very good neuroscience course there. So she phoned up the, her husband at UCL and, and Queen Mary paid for me to go to UCL 
to go and do a degree in neuroscience. And, uh, and I got more than a first-class honours degree out of that because I met my wife there, Sarah. And uh, we ended up, we were in the same year together to start with. And, uh, and that's how we sort of, we actually didn't start going out until I'd, I'd uh, left UCL. But um, that's, that's why we ended up going out, I think, because it takes two sort of doctors to appreciate each other's, the constraints of each other's lives, I think, because it's, it's a pretty demanding existence. But um, I, I then thought, well, I want to do a PhD. Cambridge University had a very good programme for what they called MB-PhD. So you could insert a PhD into the middle of a medical degree and it was properly funded, and they would actually give you decent living costs and a stipend and that kind of thing. And, and I thought, well, maybe I'll give Cambridge University another bite of the cherry. So I, I applied, and, um, and by then, of course, I had some very good results and that kind of thing, and they, they offered me a place on this MB-PhD programme. So I ended up back in the year with all the students at Cambridge that actually had got taken instead of me. So I thought, oh, I was really nervous about this, because I thought, oh, these guys are going to be phenomenal, and I'm going to be you know, washed away. And actually, I was top of the class. Um, so I thought, well, um, yeah, I'm, I, I made the right decision because I was brilliantly taught in London and I got the best of both worlds because then I went back, I did five years at Cambridge, I did my rest of my medical degree, I did that PhD and if I hadn't done that, I would never have started that radio show. And now I, you know, I've got the best of both worlds. I practice in medicine, but I also get to, to come and I've met people like you. I've, you know, as I say, been all over the world. I've been to some amazing places and um, met Nobel Prize winners, interviewed some phenomenal people. Um, I went to South Africa and went down the world's deepest gold mine the other day. Right. phoned up this company and I said, I want to make the world's deepest podcast. And I don't mean emotionally deep. I mean, as in like <laughs> long way underground. And, uh, and they said, great, come. And uh, I went down this gold mine. It was you know, amazing. And you, you can never do that kind of thing normally. So I, you know, I, I'm very, very glad I did what I did. And, and I'm very grateful that I've had the opportunity to do it. Actually, I've been amazingly well-educated. And can you see yourself teaching at some point? I still do. I mean, I do lecture the medical students. It's quite funny because I take all the tricks that work on the radio and how you make good podcasts. And you just wheel them out in front of the students in a lecture theatre, and and they love it. So the same tricks work whether it's a radio program or a lecture. You, well, you need you, to you need to share some of these tricks scores. because you've got a little bit more of a <laughs> successful track record that I could do with picking your brains on. Well, I think that the key is um, actually humour goes a long way, mm-hmm. and um, I think if you make things dull and boring, then people will perceive them as dull and boring, and they'll treat them as dull and boring, and they'll switch off. Whereas if you make things sh- interesting and and rely on the fact that people need to be stimulated and not bored to death entertained entertained it works wonders and so i you know i throw in the odd joke i don't take myself too seriously um but the message is there and the message is clear and i think if you if you can get people thinking that they're gonna they're guessing where you're gonna go next what are you gonna say next they're almost anticipating it's almost like a surfer on a wave yeah and that waves their understanding they're anticipating where you're gonna go next and it keeps them in the equation because they're guessing along oh, is he gonna say that is he gonna say that oh, they are oh, yes i predicted that and then they feel good because they know that they're they're on your wavelength and i think that's that's a part of a successful sort of communication strategy so have you got to a point now where the podcast is now a life of its own Yes, in the sense that my game plan long term has been um, very much not this is about me. The reason we created The Naked Scientist is that if you look at science media, if you look at all media actually, it's, it's all dominated by a freelance industry because no one wants to give anyone a job, no one wants to give anyone any kind of security because that's a risk. And therefore it's really difficult to develop transferable skills, to learn those skills, share them as a group and share out your skills to make the, the, the greater good, the bigger entity, get bigger. So as a result, it's things like the BBC do very well, but they're doing well off the backs of, of all these freelance people who, who are not 
you know, not knowing where their next job is coming from. So we created the Naked Scientist with the idea that we would create this umbrella brand that then people could work on, they could contribute to. It would carry them, but they would carry it. And um, my long-term plan is that hopefully I'll be making myself redundant one day where the team we have are so good that they don't need me on there. I'm, I'm just, you know, a bit of oil that's lubricating the, the wheels occasionally. But on the whole, you've got a really bloody good team behind it. And I think we're pretty much, you know, we have got a really awesome team of people. They're not very big. And if you think we've only got four or five people. And, um, and if you look at um, the, the kind of numbers we get for a team that big pumping out the quality we are because it's hard doing science it's it's not like um watching a football match and commenting on it you obviously need that un, that background knowledge of, of the football and the game and so on but every week you're starting from scratch with a new science story where it's cutting edge knowledge that no one knew before and you've got to learn all that assimilate all that and then turn it into something that people can understand it's really hard so have you had any funding from government mm. Yeah, I mean, the way I funded it, over the years I raised about one and a half million pounds in funding, actually. Um, that funding came from various grants. Uh, there's the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, which is one of the government's biggest funding bodies. They fund physical sciences in the UK. So we had money from them, and they supported outreach to get physical sciences, that means chemistry, engineering, physics, and so on, across the general public. And the Wellcome Trust uh, who are based in London and are an amazing organisation. They were relentless in their support for us in the early days. And uh, I would be nowhere if it hadn't been for them. They gave me my first big grant and they gave me a sequence of large grants in the end, actually, which uh, enabled uh, me to take on staff. Because when I first started all this, it was just me. Mm. You know, I'd stay up all night kind of making these programmes, then transcribing all the programmes, and I'd turn up at the BBC and they didn't pay us anything. I, I said, oh, look, I don't want any money. I'm not good enough to get paid yet. Just just give us the airtime, because that was the valuable thing. We realised in the early days that's the value was you know get the get the programs made um but luckily that has changed and um about the late noughties so 2009 rolls royce joined the equation because they wanted us to help them to make compelling programs about metallurgy and materials science for their jet engines uh, so that they could recruit the next generation of, of metallurgists and engineers into their company and uh, so we've been working with them for, for a decade now, and that's been a wonderful experience. And then it's other entities like yourself who, who may not have given us hard cash, but have given us something extremely valuable in the form of support, knowledge, uh, the ability to discuss things and, and bounce ideas off each other, um, and the, the servers and so on, the bandwidth that you've contributed. I mean, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have been anywhere. We'd have died a death, Lawrence, if, uh, if UK Fast hadn't got involved. And I'm, I'm not just saying that because it's you. I mean it. Well, it's lovely to hear. Podcasts become very popular now. Yet you've grown yours at a time when they weren't popular. So you've, you defy gravity. What advice would you give somebody trying to punch through? Because there's a huge array of podcasts when you go out there. You go onto iTunes or SoundCloud. There's a whole list of them. How do you punch through and make yours stand out from everybody else? I've always been relentless in my pursuit of excellence. I mean, we're driven very much by reputation and trying to be the best. And um, that won't let you down. I think if, if you aim high... And, and say, well, I'm doing my best. No one can ask for you to do better than your best. And I think be open to the fact that um, people know how to do things. Seek advice. Don't, don't make the same mistake twice. You know, we, I don't mind people making mistakes, but um, if they make them twice, I do. So we learn from all our mistakes, and we've made loads of them. But that's how we got better. Um, it's much harder now, though. I mean, I had it easier in the sense that although we had to come up with the idea and had to work very hard to get this going in the first place, we had to work hard in a different way. Now, 
it's not so much the fact that people are unfamiliar with this and we're trying to get people to embrace something new, which was what we were grappling with. Now, there's such a huge amount of competition and the barrier to entry is really high because you've got major players like the BBC who are putting out all their programming and their production values are really high. So someone who comes in with a laptop in their living room is going to really struggle to get the same traction as you know, when you're offered, you could download a whole suite of stuff off BBC Sounds, which is the new app that the BBC have released recently. Uh, it, it's a really hard um, sort of barrier because, mm. you know, you're, you're trying to compete with something that spends four billion plus of, of um, licence fee payers' money every year on production. So they should be good, you know, and they are good. Um, so I think the, the challenge is different these days. And if you can find something... And it worked for us because we were doing science and people thought science was boring and it had to be boring and therefore there was not much made because they didn't think people would be interested in it. We came along with an ability and an idea and a, a concept we knew a lot about. I think if you can find something that you're really interested in, you've got passion for it because you're going to need a lot of that and energy and you know more about it than anybody else or at least as much as, as the best people, you've got a really fighting chance. And just do it. Have fun. And if, you know, if, you, if you're having fun, who cares if a million people download it, at least in the early days, just do it because it's fun. So obviously, Chris, you've been all the way around the world with your podcast. What's the most unusual or bizarre situation that you've got yourself into? Well, someone rang up a radio show I was on once and they said, how many organs can I donate and still remain alive? <laughs> Which... It's actually, funny enough, is at the time of the global financial crisis. So we were sort of joking, saying, is this person capitalising on their internal assets in some way? <laughs> That's amazing. So you mentioned when you first came on the fact you do this podcast naked. Well, I didn't say I'd do it. No, I said I, I, I occasionally take my clothes off. And that wasn't a lie because I, I did get persuaded to, to actually appear in the studio clothesless. Well, we've seen the photos. Yeah, now, you see... Um, that was Cambridge University's alumni magazine. And they said, well, we're quite interested in what you're doing. We saw the alumni would like to as well. Now, I didn't know how many people got the Cambridge University alumni magazine. <laughs> uh, I was a bit naive at that time. And so I said, oh, I'll do that. Yeah. And, and Helen Scales, who was on the programme at the time, she said, oh, she was good sport. She said, yeah, OK, I'll do it as well. And then my friend Brian, he agreed to appear in the photo as well. And we rearranged all these microphones in strategic positions so that we could sit there, <laughs> nothing on. And uh, this photo came out. The next thing I know, honestly, my mailbox exploded with these people around the world who'd got this thing and, and all these straight-laced American people who were saying, what on earth are Cambridge University doing with this? But it worked incredibly well. I mean, they, they saw that it was a joke and, um, and it was great marketing and it's, it served me very well. Well, we carried that joke on today, actually, when, uh, when we were talking about you this morning. And Jamie, our sound engineer here, and when he said, that, what, the naked size is that? I said, yeah. And we were joking, saying you'll always turn up in just a dressing gown. I thought you were going to say perfect face for radio, which is the other, the other thing that's occasionally <laughs> leveled, leveled at me. But. So there's a massive skills gap in education, particularly in science, particularly with women in science. How can you help bridge that? Or is there something we can all do? Well, things are getting much better for the women in science side of things. I mean, if you look at the figures I've seen, and I was talking to a friend of mine who's one of the deputy vice-chancellors at one of the Australian universities, actually, of people going to university in, in Australia, and it's very broadly similar here, 65% are women. Right. 
Um, so men are actually in the minority. Um, in some science subjects, it's certainly true that there's still more men than women. But then I don't think we should be prescriptive. I think we should, yeah. we should make sure that actually the workplace supports family life. Because if you ask people, particularly in things like medicine, why do you do the specialty that you do? And, and very often people are forced to make a very tough decision between do I want to have kids and a family or do I want this career? Mm. And I don't think that should be the case. I think if we made the work environment better for everybody, then people wouldn't be put in that position. Um, now, in terms of sort of the skills gap, it's that, that's a big worry for me because um, the figures I saw the other day suggest that in the next decade or so, the number of positions we need with people who know how to write computer code is not measured in the hundreds, it's not measured in the thousands, and it's not measured in the single millions either. Um, you know, we're talking about millions of people needed, and we just don't have them. Um, the evidence is that people are not going to university quickly enough to study this yeah. stuff. And so we've got to inspire these people. And so I think part of my role, part of my duty, is to try to make people love and appreciate science as much as I do. Because I think if you do that, then you're more receptive to the idea of people then saying, well, what shall I study at university? Well, I think I should study something which will enable me to then go into these sorts of things. Um, and so I, I think that actually by super serving even the people who are who are being super served you're still doing something because i think there are probably people who download our programs and they would download any science program they're probably a science geek already a bit like me but who cares because if it does give them that extra bit of edge and they become a captain of industry or they become the best coder in the country then we've done our job and so i think um you know we should we shouldn't just try and serve everybody we should try and get as many people as possible to so that we capture the odd the odd one or two who are going to be the special ones and then really encourage them do you think coding as a language should be compulsory in, in schools yeah like uh, english and french maybe yeah, definitely because um it, you know when i grew up i was one i had one of the first bbc micro computers in the country i can remember i drove well i didn't drive my dad mum drove me to cambridge and i went to the acorn computer store and um and i bought this bbc model b microcomputer and i learned to program the bloody thing mm. um and bbc basic i realize now how amazing those machines were and how clever those people were when, when they built yeah. that and i actually got to meet the person who wrote a lot of the code wow. and, and designed the chips for that i had the person on our program the other day actually and it was you know i said this is like 40 years ago <laughs> when they were doing all this work um and you think these people were incredibly bright and um that legacy of, of doing that meant that when you see i didn't touch computers because i was i was then in that windows black hole that came along for for 20 years no yeah. one no one did any coding because windows you know you clicked on things and there was no incentive for a person mm. to, to learn how a computer worked and um and so for 20 years i didn't really touch it and then along comes a friend of mine and invents the raspberry pi and i thought uh, well okay i'm gonna i'm gonna get these people on our program and in order to find out whether or not what they're saying is really true, I'm going to put this to the test. So I just went and bought a Raspberry Pi. I thought, let me see if I can learn a new language, because I'd never coded in Python and PHP before that. So I just went and bought one. And um, pretty quickly, I became pretty proficient. And it was thanks to the, the legacy of that BBC Basic of, from the early days of, of learning that language that I then was able to then understand how you write computers and I wasn't scared of it. So I think, yes, absolutely, in the future, it's so important that we understand this stuff. I think that probably on the curriculum, alongside learning a foreign language, there should be a computer language as well, just to give people the idea of the structure, if nothing else. It's hard to imagine that in schools here in Manchester that some of the schools wouldn't have computers. We run co-clubs, we work with nearly 60,000 kids, around 60 schools, 
And everything we do in those, in those schools is free of charge. We've never charged a penny for it. We even run teach the teacher sessions when the teachers have come to us and said, we're a little bit intimidated of how to run these and how to do it. When schools say to us, we would love to have you in there, but we haven't got computers for the children. We've taken UK Fast Space and we've taken our great teachers. And we, in fact, we've built a, a charity now called UK Fast Education Trust. And we're building Raspberry Pi cafes. So thanks to your friend who's been inspirational. <laughs> Evan Upton, who, who was yeah, one of the inventors. Incredible, incredible inspirational people to, to come up with something so so. But this thing is less than £30. Yeah. And a lot of the code that runs on the Naked Scientist website, I actually wrote Brilliant. on a Raspberry Pi. Um, it, you shouldn't try and run our website on a Raspberry Pi because it will run incredibly slowly. <laughs> um, but you need you need the kind of service you've got here. But um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the code was actually for some of the stuff was developed on there. And going back to the person who who developed the BBC computer, mm. was that a BBC project? No, um, actually, it was interesting. I had a conversation with David Braben, who's a, a friend of mine now, and uh, he's he's an angel investor in Cambridge, and he owns Frontiers, who make a lot of computer games. Big yeah. company. They floated that uh, about five years ago, I think. Um, but I have worshipped David Braben for years because when I was about eight years old, I bought this computer game, Elite, along okay. with a million other people. It was one of the biggest selling games for the BBC microcomputer in the 1980s. It was a phenomenal game. Um, and, and David re-released it as Elite Dangerous, which they, crowd, they crowdfunded the re-release. And they, they raised more than a million pounds to... to crowdfund wow. the development of this new game. And, and David was involved in the development of the Pi. And he told me that um, they actually wanted to call it the BBC Nano because the BBC microcomputer made by Acorn was a great success because it had the BBC name attached to it. Yeah. And the BBC at that time were very enthusiastic because they saw the potential of, you know, there's, there's the opportunity to get people involved in this and young people nurture a generation of computer scientists off the back of this and, and the BBC got behind it. So they thought that if they took the Raspberry Pi to uh, the BBC that they would be equally enthusiastic and, and I think that it faltered. I right. don't think the BBC realised the potential. I think they. I think you know. I'm not talking for the BBC. I don't, you know. I'm, I'm not part of the BBC organisation. I just provide them with programmes. I I think that um, they probably missed a trick because it, it didn't get called the BBC Nano. It got called the Raspberry Pi. But mm. I think it, it, you know it's done brilliantly well. I mean, it hasn't certainly not caused, caused a problem because if you think how many millions of units it's moved, they've they've done incredibly well. Amazing. It's amazing technology. But I think they could have. Well, we've bought thousands even, of them. Even better if it had been BBC Nano, perhaps. Yeah, we've bought thousands of them and, and have given them out you know, in schools, colleges. Everything. I mean, it's just amazing that you can have for what people would spend on one month subscription on some mobile phone networks. You've got a computer. And it's a computer that, with a very few rudiments, you plug a keyboard in and plug it into your television with an HDMI cable. You're now coding with completely free software. You can download Linux, you can download PHP and Python, all these things are open source, and you can learn how that environment operates in a very safe way. You can't brick this thing. If you mess it up, take the card out, reflash, put it back in. Um, whereas if you messed your desktop up, that's yeah. a few hours' work to fix it. So it, it's brilliant for kids. And my, my kids, uh, you know, under the age of 10 understood how to SSH into a headless wow. terminal over home network and they could write little little things. And, um, and I think they achieved a lot with that. I mean, it's an amaz amazing thing. I, th I think those guys deserve a knighthood, to be honest, because they've got thousands of people learning new languages and getting a new kind of momentum behind computing that, that just wasn't there before. Well, and also just the fact that they're enabling us to help enable schools. And we couldn't do that. If the computers cost a £1,000 each, we wouldn't be able to afford to do that. But it's very easy for us to just go in and help. 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's amazing. And it's, it's having that enabling technology that is part of it. But it's also extraordinary, isn't it, when you think that thing is the size of a credit card mm. and what it can do. And my BBC microcomputer that was a lot less powerful than that was a lot larger yeah. as well. And But it was £400. I remember I saved up a lot of money to buy that. 400 quid in 1984 was a lot of money. Yeah, a huge amount. <laughs> yeah. £21 for a Raspberry Pi. So, Chris, it's been a real pleasure having you here today. You're That's a great friend and, and thank you very much for using <laughs> Thanks, us all these years on and... One more thing before I go, the answer to that question, how many organs can you donate? Well, as science moves forward, I've had to update the answer to this, actually. Um, (laughs) Well, let's go through it together. So we'll start at the top. So you have two eyes. If you're feeling very altruistic, you could give your eyes and then someone else could borrow the corneas of those for a corneal transplant. So you'd be blind, but you'd save someone else's sight. So that's one. Um, Then if we go down into the chest, you've got two lungs. You Mm -hmm. can manage with one. So that's a lung. That's another one. Uh, Down into the abdomen, you've got intestines. Well, you don't need those. You could actually survive without that. You could have total parental nutrition and be fed through a a sort of tube into a vein. So that's the third one. You could give a chunk of your pancreas. Uh, You don't need all of it, so you could donate some of it to someone diabetic and that would sort them out. Um, You've got two kidneys, so you could get rid of one of those and someone could uh, be spared the necessity to have dialysis. So that's up to five. Um, There's also skin, which is your biggest external organ. And if you're a rhinoceros, that could weigh 250 kilo. I mean, it's huge. I've huge been called a rhinoceros in my psychometric profile. Really? Yeah, 250 kilos of skin, Lawrence. That's Feels like that sometimes. <laughs> so skin and skin grafts save a lot of lives when people have burns and things like that. So that's at least six. Then your blood, bone marrow, is an organ in its own right, right. because although it's distributed all over the place through, through all the nooks and crannies in your, in your long bones, um, it's a complex three-dimensional architecture of cells. And so those blood bone marrow stem cell transplants save thousands of lives around the world every year so now we're up to at least seven Uh, you don't need all your liver uh, and the liver has an amazing regenerative capacity so you could chop off four-fifths of your liver and we actually do this as transplants we actually take four-fifths of someone's liver leave them with a fifth give the four-fifths to the recipient who then regenerates a working liver from the four-fifths and the person left with one-fifth grows a whole new liver so you could you could do that and then there's a few other nooks and crannies, nods and sods that have come along because of science in, in, in subsequent years. Um, ovaries is a good example. If you're an identical twin, you could um, take your ovaries out, give those to another person, and they actually can re-establish their own fertility from your ovaries operating in them. Obviously, if you're female, helps if you're female. Yeah, yeah. Um, the scientists have done a uterus transplant. You don't need a uterus, but you can transplant one, and they have done successfully. Um, I'm not sure about the male equivalent yet. I don't think anyone's actually successfully done this and made something that's successful as well. But I'm sure it won't be, you know, too difficult. If pun you intended. Yeah, yeah, pun intended. So I reckon the numbers north of ten or eleven different well, things that you could do this for, this for now. I'm feeling a bit squeamish after that. I don't know about you. <laughs> 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 oh, well, anyway, it's been absolutely fantastic. Oh, it's been fantastic. Thanks, thanks for the thanks, chat, Chris. Lawrence. Cheers. Well, you say that life is driven by the chance. So, if you enjoyed this podcast today, please recommend it to others and like it and give us a review. I greatly appreciate that, and I'll see you next time. Life is strange, but we don't change. We don't change.